Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we talk with Dave Wright, co-founder and portfolio manager at Sierra Investment Management. For over 30 years, Dave and the team at Sierra have been managing tactical, global, multi-asset class portfolios, and they have a successful track record over multiple market cycles. Our conversation focuses on how these conservative portfolios are built, the importance of stop losses, multi-asset class investing, and broader macro issues like the Fed, inflation, and the massive influx of retail trading and investors. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Sierra Investment Management's Dave Wright. Dave, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. We're going to talk about your approach to investing, which I would consider conservative, more tactical in nature. We're going to talk about how you manage risk and also manage money for the long term um, at Sierra. But before we get into a lot of those things, I wanted to ask you about your background, because one of the unique things I think with your background is that you actually were a lawyer, or that's what you went to uh, graduate school for, uh, for law before you transitioned to asset management. So I just thought maybe to start, if you could kind of talk about how that transition happened and then, and then maybe as a follow-up, I'll just sort of ask within this question though, but is, is there anything that you sort of learned as a lawyer that you thought sort of helped in investment management? Uh, not so much as a lawyer, my initial degree is as an engineer. Uh, And that has helped very much because um, when you think about what engineers do, uh, whether you're designing and building a bridge or a dam or a tall building, you know what point B is going to be. So you focus on point B and every decision you make uh, in the design and in the implementation has to serve that end, has to move you toward that end. So although my partner, uh, Ken Sleeper, has a PhD and an MBA, um, you find that the mathematics we use for our tactical disciplines is really very um, applied math, if you will, very much more uh, as an engineer would think. So every decision we make has to serve either the end of uh, reducing risk, uh, reducing drawdown in, in, a, uh, uh, in a diversified account, or improving return. Now, as a, as a corporate lawyer, of course, Uh, I learned to deal with the SEC. Um, These are uh, different statutes that uh, we operate under, uh, but I do understand uh, how the SEC works. And so we're able to understand compliance more thoroughly than many firms. Uh, And of course, we're committed to uh, absolute uh, conformity uh, with the rules and regulations. And occasionally we get a chance to comment on them. So that really would be the applicability uh, of my legal uh, work for 13 years, uh, but my engineering background <clears throat> was very pragmatic, and that's the way we manage money. I did see that also in your background with the engineering undergrad degree, but I was, I was kind of thinking there's another very, very successful investor uh, with a law degree from Southern California, so I thought maybe, and that's Charlie Munger, of course, but I thought maybe, uh, maybe there was something there with like law and investing, but I, I, you know, there's certainly a lot more engineers, I think in the investment management space. And, um, those points are well taken. Let's talk a little bit about conservative investing at a high level, uh, to begin with. So 
I think a lot of people define conservative very differently in the investing space. So how would you define conservative investing in the context of what you guys do at Sierra? All right. Well, let's see if this uh, resonates with your audience. Uh, we believe that it's the responsibility of investment professionals uh, to understand technical aspects such as standard deviation, correlation, sharp ratio, Sortino ratio, and a number of other uh, uh, sophisticated metrics, if I can put it that way. But the way the individual investor feels risk is when their account declines. And in the industry, we call that drawdown. And so everything we did starting in the mid-1980s in developing our disciplines uh, has been focused on limiting drawdown um, in a diversified account. Uh, we have a specific design parameter. Again, as an engineer, uh, I wanted to know what point B was in this uh, regard of risk mitigation. And so in our diversified strategies and, uh, and several of our other strategies, uh, the, uh, the design parameter is to limit drawdown to 5% per calendar quarter, 5% per calendar quarter after fees. And for uh, 28 consecutive, I'm sorry, 104 consecutive quarters, um, we have met that design parameter. There's only one quarter where uh, very slightly we exceeded 5% uh, drawdown, uh, even in a very bad uh, market environment. Um, so uh, this discipline and this focus, this specific goal, if you will, uh, and the disciplines that we developed to serve that goal um, have been extremely effective. And I can give you a couple examples if you have time. Yes, please. All right. Uh, in the, uh, we opened our doors on October 1, 1987, uh, and a crash occurred less than three weeks later uh, when the Dow fell 23% in a single day, the crash of 1987. We use a trailing stop under every holding as our key risk mitigation discipline. And every domestic equity mutual fund and international equity mutual fund that we held in client accounts hit their stops on October 8th and 9th. So we were 100% out of domestic and foreign equities when the crash came on the 19th. Um, then even more important, uh, when the uh, stock market peaked in early 2000 uh, and fell 50% uh, in the S&P, uh, gradually and in a bumpy ride uh, for 32 months. That bear market was 32 months long into March of 2003. Our clients didn't lose a penny. Um, they actually gained a penny after fees, a very small amount after fees. But in that entire 32-month period, uh, our stop-loss discipline was, was extremely effective. And then you flash forward to an even faster, steeper, and deeper decline um, from October of uh, 19, I'm sorry, of 2007 into March 9th of 09, uh, you had the S&P drop 56%, uh, which I think is the uh, deepest decline since the 30s. I'm not sure at the moment, um, but uh, it, it occurred in only 18 months. So a lot um, sharper and deeper. And yes, our diversified accounts declined in total um, almost 10%, little short of 10%. Uh, but we met our goal of not having any calendar quarter uh, decline more than 5%. But here's the key. Our buy discipline 
uh, which is sort of the reverse of our trailing stops on the cell discipline, uh, had us back in uh, very uh, aggressive asset classes within 10 business days of the March 9th, 09 uh, bottom. And so we were about 75% um, invested in things like bank sector stocks, natural resources stocks, physical commodities, emerging market equities, emerging market debt, and junk bonds. And our clients were in new profit five weeks after that bottom. So that, that is really uh, the, the flip side of risk mitigation is taking advantage of favorable market environments uh, using a discipline. So uh, that for us was a, a very gratifying uh, that again, after 35 years and having back tested on 20 years prior to that, uh, that our discipline that our disciplines remained very very effective in limiting drawdown and drawdown is how the household um, feels risk. Yeah, and I think that you know what's the phrase like everybody looks good in a bull market, but in a bear market, you know that's when you really find out like who has a good investment strategy, something like that. But we also know that in bear markets, investors tend to make really bad decisions in terms of selling at the bottom and being out of the market and then not getting in quickly enough. I mean, that's very interesting that your system was able to sidestep, you know, all of the, the worst case and all those bear markets, but then be back in very quickly. Cause that can be, to some extent, that can be, um, a challenge with some timing or trend following. Yes. Professionals are very aware of a cycle of emotion. Uh, there are some cool graphs of it, like a sine wave with, uh, emotional, um, remarks uh, all the way down and all the way back up. And, and you're absolutely right. Uh, most money managers do not have a discipline for dealing with uh, steep declines and, or uh, sustained declines. And so you need a manager that can play uh, defense as well as offense. That's the best I can do with a sports metaphor. Uh, but I love the metaphor about uh, when the tide goes out, you can see who's swimming naked. Right. Hope that'll screen for you. Uh, in, in any event, uh, you, you do find out who does not have a cell discipline. And uh, that kind of thing destroyed Merrill Lynch, uh, destroyed Bear Stearns, destroyed Shearson, uh, because they didn't think this way. And these are super sophisticated investors who spend tens of millions a year on analysts and, uh, and market research. Uh, and it was totally inadequate because they never learned to play defense. Before we get into some of the details around your strategy, what, just to go back to those early days in, in 1987, what was the, what was the core genesis of focusing on conservative investment strategies? Like, how did you land there? Was it, did you do tests and say, how do we create a strategy that can withstand the test of time? How, how did you and your partner land on a conservative investment approach versus let's buy stocks and, you know, try to get the best return for the long run. Yes. Uh, when we opened our doors, uh, of course, the technology was fairly primitive and we did hundreds of seminars in LA County and, and Orange County. And in those seminars, most of the time I would take a show of hands poll uh, from the audience to find out more about their risk tolerance. Um, and also their return objectives. Um, I also developed a 22-hour curriculum that I called Successful Investment Strategy and taught it for 11 
headquarters at uh, Beverly Hills Adult School, um, where I, of course, had a two-way uh, discussion with many um, local people, including some pretty sophisticated uh, private investors and indeed some market professionals. And so that gave us a lot of insight um, as to the risk tolerance of the typical um, mid-affluent household. The other thing is that uh, my partner and I believe that about 60% of financial assets held by households, individual investors, is held by retirees. And so we decided that that was an appropriate market uh, for those reasons and a couple other reasons uh, for us to address. So knowing that, uh, we knew that one of our goals should be to limit drawdown uh, so that we would have <clears throat> good retention, <clears throat> excuse me, um, happy results from our clients, um, and they would put more of their money with us and indeed uh, refer friends and family members who ended up with uh, some life event uh, like a divorce or the, uh, the sale of a property or an inheritance. So uh, that has really been the focus of our um, investor population, uh, people who are inherently conservative and who really don't like declines at all. Uh, they find declines much more important than having uh, uh, an, a, an advisor who hits triples on occasion. You know, that's one thing that um, is very important for retirees is managing that sequence risk, especially early on in someone's retirement. I mean, someone retires and they're 8% in stocks and then you go into like, you know, a 2007, 2008, early of nine market, they're going to absolutely get crushed, especially if they're drawing off of the portfolio. So I think what you're talking about is very important for a vast majority of investors. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, the large majority of our direct clients um, are in the withdrawal phase of their lives. And you're absolutely right. Imagine during the 32 months of the first big decline, cyclical bear market of this century, for 32 months, you're taking money out and your account is getting smaller because of market decline, down 50% in the S&P, depending how much of your portfolio was in equities. Um, and at the same time, you're taking money out. So those people never recovered. If you retired before uh, 2000, and you went through that episode, uh, your your net worth never recovered. Your financial assets in, uh, in accounts uh, never recovered back to where they were in 2000. So yeah, sequence of risk um, is extremely important to our clientele uh, and to most households as they approach retirement or are, are in retirement. And by the way, that's an excellent point because, you know, we can't look at the bear market of early 2020 and think that that's a normal bear market, <laughs> you know, 30 days, you know, 35% down in 30 days, but then it basically bottomed, you know, within a month and then you're off to the races again. So, you know, most bear markets are a lot longer. So investors should realize that. And I think a lot of them do, but that's an important point that you're bringing up. Yeah, um, that, that was too short of a decline for people to get really scared or panicked at the bottom and public investors and some institutions uh, panic in the final weeks. And that's what uh, creates the washout and, and gives room for uh, the sustained rally and the renewal of a, of a bull market. Uh, so again, there are uh, various um, emotional aspects uh, that are connected with uh, a, a market decline. 
and halfway down, people begin to lose their um, complacency, if I can put it that way. We now have record complacency after a record long period uh, without any, any multi-quarter declines. So I personally decline, uh, define a, a bear market as having multi-quarter declines. And uh, 2020, of course, wasn't that. But when you have market declines for uh, more than a few months and more than a couple of quarters, it really changes attitude out there and it begins to feed on itself. Um, so if you have overvaluation to begin with, not at all a good timing tool. Um, valuation turns out to be a fairly uh, reliable and accurate metric of how deep the uh, the bear market will go. And of course, we're in uh, high uh, overvaluation now, and the next bear market could be pretty deep. One of the things that I do worry about a little bit with um, the market today are more, there, there's, a, there's obviously millions and millions of new investors that have never that have come online that are investing younger investors um that hadn't seen what a true bear market is and so i worry that um and listen as a new investor you know you're you're never have going to see a bear market until you go through it it's just you know the only market they've seen is is basically straight up and so that's just not the reality of long-term investing i worry that um that when the uh, you know real bear market comes, that some of these investors aren't going to be mentally prepared for it. But I mean, maybe that's another discussion for another day. It's just one of the things that I sort of think about when I think about these millions of new investors that have been investing. Yes, uh, we think about it also. Um, those people aren't aren't really our client uh, because they're not conservative, um, and also because very few of them meet our uh, minimum for for new client uh, relationship. But yeah, there are people speculating in futures, options, um, cryptocurrencies, uh, and uh, and a lot of um, uh, accounts where they're really not getting advice, um, Robinhood and things like that. Uh, so the marketplace has generated new opportunities to take on risk, and virtually nobody under thirty really understands um, how deep declines can be and how scary they can be. And there are a number of rationalizations on the way down. You know, well, I should buy more. Uh, I should buy the dip. That happens for a while. And okay, well, this looks like it's over because bear markets are characterized by really impressive uh, bounces, um, short-term rallies. And so it's very hard for the individual investor uh, to understand which rallies uh, are the beginning of a really good long-term uptrend and which are uh, essentially um, going to be brief and fail. And then you get to the point where you're saying, well, you know, it's too late to sell. I'm down 30% or I'm down 40%. And then they ride it further down. And then finally, uh, there's the capitulation phase where a great number of investors um, see a really bad down day, like 6% in one day in the Dow, and they throw in their hands. Um, and that uh, markets always overshoot. Uh, they overshoot to the upside every cycle. Um, they overshoot to the downside. Uh, and in other words, they go below fair valuation. And that sets up a buying opportunity for professional investors and institutions around the world um, to buy from what's called weak hands. So that's, that's how market bottoms are created. Uh, but on the way down, 
It's uh, pretty complicated and individual investors under 30 uh, or otherwise unsophisticated aren't ready for what's coming. I wanted to ask you about um, building a conservative investment strategy in what is effectively a you know, low yield environment and how you think about that. I think the 10 years at like maybe 1.4, 1.5 today. Um, so yields are, are, you know, at historic lows. So, I mean, how do you guys think about building conservative investment strategies when you have yields as low as they are today? Yes. Uh, really good question. Um, we believe that it's, uh, not helpful to focus on yield at all. Um, we believe that, uh, the best approach is to focus on what's called total return. Uh, the combination of yield from the asset types that give you yield and appreciation uh, at the same time. So the combination of those two is called total return. So for example, um, if we have a retired household that needs 15,000 a month, um, we simply instruct our operations staff uh, which um, of their holdings should be trimmed, uh, that group, um, uh, for each member of that group, which holdings should be trimmed. And our operations staff knows exactly how much each family needs, and then we wire that money directly into their checking account. So what we want to do is what I call uh, the best we can um, to get good returns in every part of the cycle, but at the same time monitor every holding daily uh, with our trailing stop discipline to keep them out of trouble. So yield for us is not an objective per se. Uh, it drives some financial advisors nuts because they're trying to create portfolio uh, uh, flows from interest and dividends to match each individual client. Um, that's not only time consuming um, and a waste of time in our opinion, uh, but it is massively difficult uh, in a period like this where we have among the lowest yields for 30 years, uh, people who, that we used to call savers, who 30 years ago would simply roll over CDs and be very, very safe and they didn't know or want to know anything about the stock market, um, those people have zero chance of meeting their retirement objectives, rolling over CDs now, of course. Um, my bank is paying me um, one-tenth of 1% uh, a month, I'm sorry, annualized now in my uh, savings account. So, uh, and of course, this has had a major impact on households who have been pushed uh, by this Fed policy to invest in risky assets. And that was part of their objective after 2009. Uh, but it is, in my opinion, um, a problem and inappropriate. Are there any opportunities that you're looking at that you think are undiscovered or are areas that investors maybe wouldn't expect? Well, um, for our... Uh, for our house accounts, for our direct client accounts, uh, the first thing I look at is uh, municipal bond mutual funds. And uh, Nuveen High Yield uh, Municipal Fund is our, uh, is our largest holding in that area. They're very, very skillful managers of municipal bonds. Municipal bonds tend to be uh, in the aggregate, in other words, in a mutual fund portfolio of hundreds of bonds. Um, they tend to be very stable in value um, and you're getting the yield 
which is tax-free, uh, free of federal income tax. And we also, for our California clients, um, invest in mutual funds that specialize in California bonds. Now, uh, the muni bond mutual funds do decline occasionally uh, more than, let's say, 2 2.5%. Um, if you were doing this at home, uh, maybe every Friday, look at the uh, value of the um, of the mutual fund, the muni bond mutual fund, and if it's down 2.5% um, off its high, sell it temporarily and move into a tax-free money market account or, or money market fund. And then when it rises 2.5% from the bottom, buy back into it. This is a very simplistic approach, and it will work. It will keep you out of trouble. Um, you'll never have a drawdown in, in that category that bothers you. Uh, another category is high-yield corporate bonds. Um, they tend to be uh, very stable in their uptrends and, and fairly stable in their downtrends. Uh, again, a 2.5% stop will work on a high-yield bond mutual fund. Um, some of those are exceedingly well-managed, um, including Fidelity and, and uh, Blackstone, uh, for example. You want to look for mutual funds where the investor share class, the public share class, has a relatively low um, expense ratio. Um, we buy institutional shares, uh, which have low expense ratios. Uh, but even the public can benefit substantially uh, by having money in high-yield corporate bond funds most of the time. They will decline uh, when the stock market declines because they are tied to the health of corporations. And so you do want to have stops under them. And then when things get better, uh, they will rise. They will recover in value um, as well as paying uh, among the highest dividend yield um, in both directions. So that's the second asset class that most um, public investors don't really focus on. But buy funds and not individual bonds. Yeah, both both good areas, for I think, for people to explore that are looking for something um, you know, lower, lower risk. Um, one of the, uh, topics or things that obviously investors are thinking about is you have very high stock market valuation based on almost all measures, maybe not, um, relative to interest rates, but any market multiple, whether, whether, if it, you know, Tobin's Q, the Buffett indicator, stock market GDP, I mean, everything looks sort of pinged in the red zone. And then you have, you know, ultra low yields. And so the question is, um, you know, what does that bode for the 60-40 standard stock uh, bond portfolio going forward? I mean, you know, most people are thinking it's going to be lower stock market returns and then you have rates where they are. So how do you think investors should look at the future of the 60-40? Yeah, again, um, a stop under under that holding uh, would be a good idea. Uh, generally, I suggest in the current environment, which I believe is very high risk going into January, very high risk. Uh, January has a, a surprising history uh, of, of seeing the start of uh, sustained market declines. Um, so uh, have a stop under your largest five holdings. Have a stop under your most under your riskiest holdings, for example, um, equity mutual funds. Uh, on the 60-40, um, they will be milder, uh, but they can decline. Uh, 15, 20% over time. And most public investors don't uh, feel comfortable at all 
uh, having a decline of 15% that's sort of slow over six, eight months. Um, so you can avoid that if that's one of your larger holdings, uh, more conservative than a pure equity mutual fund or ETF. Um, and, and I would say put a stop of uh, 6% under a 60-40 fund, and that'll keep you out of trouble. If the market continues up, you're a genius because you didn't get worried enough to sell uh, based on overvaluation or anything else. If the market goes down, you're a genius <clears throat> because you don't get back more than 6% off of last week's high. You could be a genius in both directions. I like it. <laughs> um, inflation is obviously front and center right now in the market. I mean, we, we're seeing some of the highest inflation we've seen maybe in the last 30 or 40 years. Um, I know you're not an economist, but obviously you've been in the markets for a very long time and you've seen periods of high inflation. Obviously last 10 years, up until about a year and a half ago, we were in a period of you know low inflation. Um, but do you have any sort of opinion on whether or not you think this inflation is gonna be more persistent or is it gonna be um, more transitory in nature? Uh, this inflation will last longer than will be comfortable. As you said, I'm not an economist, but I've seen a number of cycles and we get uh, the data flow as part of the, uh, the information flow uh, that we see every day. Uh, a lot of it is a mix of market information and economic information. But yes, this inflation is problematic. It is a separate risk factor and a very large risk factor uh, for the equity market. Um, there are a range of opinions about whether the Fed has been wise uh, or uh, or unwise, and I tend to um, I, I tend to have more faith in those uh, knowledgeable economists and others uh, who believe this is unwise. I believe the Fed is way behind in this cycle; should be tightening at the very least. They should be increasing um, the uh, the margin requirement for, uh, well, the the uh, amount that uh, the the margin interest rate. Um, so they should be tightening that as they did in prior cycles, but apparently the current Fed governors have uh, forgotten uh, that mechanism. There are other mechanisms they could tighten gradually. Uh, it's not all about their selling uh, or buying less of uh, of bonds. So. I, I believe that we've set up for a very dangerous year ahead. Do you see any value in, um, and this relates back to inflation just for a moment, but any value in things like gold or commodities um, in portfolios during periods of high inflation? Yes, um, we do own uh, positions in commodity funds, uh, probably no more than uh, six or 7% in a globally diversified portfolio. Um, I believe that in an inflationary period like this, there's likely to be a sustained rise in a basket of commodities. There are mutual funds that track an index of many commodities. So there are three or four of those that you can find. Um, so I think that should be a piece of your portfolio. Here's my reply as to gold. Um, gold is extremely volatile and it isn't always a hedge against inflation. The best hedge against inflation is real estate. Um, there are mutual funds that invest in REITs, real estate investment trusts, uh, 
uh, we prefer those that invest in uh, preferred stock of REITs. And there are four or five of those funds. So if you, uh, if you want to have something that's a really good hedge against inflation, put it in a box and don't look at it. Um, I would suggest real estate uh, uh, mutual funds as being the best hedge. With gold, here's what I say. It's a very, very volatile um, commodity in price. Uh, it, it is not a, a perfect hedge against inflation. And there are times when you're going to be really scared um, after a significant 30, 40% decline in gold. So are you going to own enough gold as a proportion of your account to make a difference? If you do, you're owning enough to be really worried um, when it goes down 40%. So we, we avoid uh, gold or silver. Um, and we would prefer to be invested in a diversified uh, commodity fund. We run some strategies that incorporate a trend following overlay on equity portfolios. Um, but in re doing some research for this um, podcast with you, I saw that you actually use a trend following system on junk bonds. So can you just talk about how you actually do that in that investment strategy and fund? Yes, sure. Yeah, we use in effect a trend following strategy on everything. Uh, that's a consequence of having a stop under every holding that we that we monitor every single day, um, and the, uh, the the degree the the um, magnitude of the stop. In other words, the bands uh, that we tolerate uh, for each asset class are different and dependent on the uh, historic volatility of the asset class. As I mentioned before. Uh, with muni bond mutual funds or ETFs or high yield corporate bond funds or ETFs, uh, a two and a half percent fixed stop is a simplistic way to stay out of trouble um, and also a simplistic way to get back in uh, with some assurance. A third of the time, the market's going to reverse and you'll find you're wrong, but you're not on the wrong side of the market very long uh, or for very much of a move. Uh, and then conversely, um, some of the trends will last a year or more, and and that's that's wonderful. But this is a great discipline uh, for trend following, and we use that discipline for all asset classes. If you're trading the S and P, um, you want to have uh, perhaps a six and a half percent stop that you can check once a week or whenever the market uh, makes you nervous. That's a stop off the off the high day, high close in the S and P. And then uh, you want about an 8% uh, stop for getting back in. Um, so the, um, the consequence of using a stop discipline like this uh, is that, in effect, you're saying, I want to participate uh, in the majority of any sustained rising trend. So it's trend following. You move your stop up every week. That's what we mean by following. And then in a declining market, uh, similarly, um, you're going to stay out of the market until it makes um, a, uh, a, a rise of several days or a couple of weeks and meets your criterion for the buy stop. So it's trend following in both directions. Stay, stay out when the trend is down, um, be in, uh, in any sustained uptrend, and take the emotion out of it. Yeah, I guess you're right. When you when you're using stops, it's automatically in like your example, it's automatically like a it's implicitly like a trend following 
approach. I, I was kind of thinking like sometimes with an equity portfolio, you may be in or out of stocks on the whole, but you may run individual stops on the positions within the portfolio. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't look within the portfolios at all. So um, just for clarity, uh, we only use uh, mutual funds in our private accounts. Um, and we, we also look at ETFs for our, our own mutual funds, which emulate uh, four of our private account strategies. If you were to explain the risks of that to an investor, like where maybe a stop loss uh, implementation or trend following could go wrong, what would you say? Uh, good question. Uh, with mutual funds, they're only priced once a day. And, and so if there is what we used to call a flash crash, and there really haven't been any of those for a while, uh, where something weird happens on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ and, and stocks plummet very briefly, um, that would take you through a stop loss that you have posted in the market um, for an ETF uh, or for individual stocks. But it does not affect the pricing of mutual funds because all the flash crashes resolve uh, before the close that day or the exchange cancels trades um, on, on uh, a couple of those days. So uh, that's another reason to use mutual funds uh, rather than ETFs. There are about eight uh, factors on both sides. There are pros and cons of using um, ETFs. Uh, versus mutual funds. It's kind of a complicated um, uh, trade-off, uh, but we do like ETFs uh, at certain times and for certain asset classes, so we're not 100% out of them, uh, but we, um, we, we think there's extra risk in, uh, um, in, in equity ETFs that uh, you don't want to have overshoots um, where they blast right through your stop. Would there ever be, I'm, I'm just wondering from like a tax standpoint, would there ever be a situation where you've held an asset for a long time or a fund for a long time, you're almost to the long-term capital gains mark, but then, you know, something goes wrong and it drops below the stop. Would you ever override or no? No, we don't override. However, um, on, on those occasions, historically, uh, we have sometimes hedged 100%. Um, so in some asset classes, there's the ability to hedge. Uh, that's true of high-yield um, corporate bonds. It's certainly true of treasury bonds and other high-grade bonds. It's true of the stock market. Um, it's not true of a mutual fund that invests in European small-cap stocks or that invests in um, emerging market debt. At least we, we have never attempted to find uh, hedges for exotic, the more exotic asset classes, uh, we just sell them. That makes sense. Um, before we wrap it up, I wanted to ask you um, about the Sierra Tactical All Assets Strategy. And I wanted just to kind of get maybe some details around building and constructing and managing an all asset, um, sort of multi-asset type portfolio. So um, maybe to start, what are the major asset classes that you consider for the portfolio? Yeah, in our unconstrained portfolio, uh, which is reflected in our tactical all-asset mutual fund, um, we can invest in any mutual fund in the country. In other words, um, any asset class and, any, and, and funds within any Morningstar category 
which now, of course, go far beyond uh, individual asset classes. Some are multi-manager and, and the number are multi-asset class, and some of them are tactical. So we can invest in any mutual fund in the country and any ETF in the country. On occasion, we've had uh, small positions in Malaysian stocks or Singapore stocks um, in, uh, in that uh, mutual fund. So we, we are completely unconstrained. Uh, we typically don't go above um, 70% equities of various kinds. Uh, we like equity surrogates like high-yield bonds and preferred stocks and master limited partnership mutual funds that are highly correlated with the stock market but less volatile. Uh, we don't have specific um, uh, requirements for maximum and minimum exposure in any asset class. I hope that answers the question. Is the buy criteria mo mostly momentum based? Um, you, you could call it that. Uh, we, we don't buy things, uh, we don't choose things based on momentum, um, but uh, in effect, uh, we need a rising trend to hit our, um, uh, our, our buy stops, if you will, the reverse of a sell stop. Um, so we're, we're looking for an upward trend, um, which you could call momentum. But if we have a lot of green lights flashing on at the same time, it's uh, very rare for us to pick the one uh, or the, those that are the highest, uh, the steepest rise, which is the definition of momentum. Uh, we will have a variety uh, of uh, actual purchases when that opportunity comes. We want, uh, we want holdings that aren't internally highly uh, correlated with each other. Just in closing here, I, we always like to ask um, our guests this question, and, and I'm really um, looking forward to hearing what you're going to say, um, but is if you could um, impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, um, given your experience in the markets, what would that be? Yeah, I, I think this is the highest risk um, period that I've seen um, in the last 12 and a half years. Uh, and at some point, there will be a major cyclical decline, um, which will have some very steep uh, parts to it. So this is a time when people should understand uh, stops and apply um, reasonable stops to each of their five largest holdings, if not more. Uh, five, I think anybody can do. Check them once a week, or if the market begins a steep downtrend, um, be very disciplined about implementing those stops and don't rationalize things um, the way a lot of people do. So make at least that part of it uh, very defensive. If somebody throws a softball at your head, what do you do? You duck. And so think about the market that way because it will be throwing some softballs or worse at you, I believe, in the coming year. That's great, Dave. Thank you very much. If people want to learn more about um, your firm, the investment strategies, read some of your research, where can they go? Yeah, um, they, they can definitely um, access uh, a lot of detail about our strategies. I intentionally put more detail into our prospectuses than almost any other fund. Okay, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This has been a good discussion. It's enjoyable for me also. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dave. Happy holidays. You too. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant, 
and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube, or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.